so hard to see. Life is full of problems. And when particularly irritated by them, we turn to professionals for help. Sure, men, especially the married kind, will insist they can take care of it. Plumbing, no problem. The Johnson rod is loose in the car, I got it. Open wound with compound bone fracture, rub some dirt on it. Still, eventually even men will get to a point when they'll ask for directions. Because what can be done? They built the city all wrong. And so, when the technical expert is called, we damn well expect they've got a toolbox of specialized effective gadgets. For example, those tooth-yanking sadists are expected to make small talk about the marathon man while utilizing a tray of mouth mirrors, sickle probes, scalers, and saliva ejectors. Go to the stables and you'll see brushes, sweat scrapers, hoof picks, deworming pastes, fly bonnets, and liniments that will give your mare that glossy finish. One expects the same of our monetary technocrats. Their toolkit, you'd expect, to hold a printing press, bond certificates, gold, as well as maps and barometers identifying the specification, production, distribution, and utilization of modern money. In this 21st episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder tells us what is in the monetary toolkit after spending a professional lifetime reading, meeting minutes, transcripts, and speeches. What's in there? Yeah, a magic eight ball, a rubber duck, prayer book of course, half-eaten egg salad sandwich, and importantly, the phone numbers of financial journalists. Join us as we discuss the monetary toolkit through the lens of China's unchanging foreign exchange reserves, credit conditions in the United States, and PMI scores from around the world. Also, we end the show by holding a candlelight vigil for the 13th anniversary of August 9th, 2007, the day that the global monetary order malfunctioned, a day that then-CEO of the British bank Northern Rock said the world changed, a day that the Guardian newspaper analogized to August 4th, 1914, the start of the Great War, a day that has yet to end. Hello everyone, in today's episode you're going to learn about three things, so the central banking narrative, China, and purchasing manager indices. Now, before you move your mouse to that cat video that looks so much more interesting, remember this show is about helping you, workers, investors, savers, better understand how the creation and destruction of money on a wholesale level affects your finances, your economy, our politics, our society. My name is Emil Kalinowski and I'm joined by Jeff Snyder the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, a man that's dedicated his professional career to understanding the piping and the flows of our global monetary order. In fact, it's a level of interest in plumbing we haven't seen since the Losers Club entered the sewers of Derry, Maine, which some of you may have recently seen a two-part documentary about called It. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Emil, and I, I think it's great that we started our episode here in the sewers with uh, all the real pipes and the real stuff that flows through them. We're going to find things that smell. Hopefully, we don't find anything horrifying. The Losers Club went into the piping system, the sewers. Not all of them made it out. Let's see what happens. Uh, let's turn to China first. Fourth of August, you wrote something uh, at the Alhambra Investments post, blog post, that you haven't written about recently, and that is China. And the title was called, quote, What's in the Same Number? China's Part in the Euro-Dollar Story. What told you that it was time to write about the Chinese yuan? Well, a big topic of conversation, certainly across the financial internet and financial media, is, of course, the dollar and its supposed crashing and Jay Powell's ruining the global reserve currency and he's going to print the dollar into uh, print infinity and that's going to destroy the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. And everybody else who's been waiting for this moment has, has been pouncing all over it. 
And I've been writing recently about some of the other currencies involved in the story, which are much more than just the euro. As we talked about last time, you know, DXY being moved by the euro and other things. But the real big one out there is the Chinese currency. And so it was, I thought it was time, you know, in this dollar story, this larger dollar story, how do the Chinese actually, actually fit into the story? Not just how it's being told of, you know, the Chinese are trying to ditch the dollar, their bilateral currency swaps and other, t- other kinds of arrangements that have cropped up all, all across the last decade that, you know, we're still here dealing with the dollar problem. That's great. We're going to touch on all that. And I want to start with your great ability. For people that don't read your work, they may not notice this, but if you, uh, if you study your work regularly, you'll notice that you have an ability to identify artificiality in, in uh, economic accounts. And it kind of reminds me of a line from uh, Prometheus, which was uh, a promising science fiction story by Ridley Scott. And our intrepid uh, explorers arrived at a planet. It looks deserted. And as they're flying around the planet, they no- someone notices a straight line. And uh, they say that God doesn't do straight lines. And nature doesn't do it either, at least not in very large segments. Uh, and it's because it's a complex system. Another complex system is that interaction between the Chinese economy and the greater Euro-dollar world. You saw a straight line and you said, nah, this is not right. Yeah, you're absolutely right because you know, in any kind of messy, complex, market-type environment, uh, you're never gonna see things that are exactly equal unless there's a purpose there. It's engineered. There's, there's somebody has done something that has created a result that was intended ahead of time. If it's just a messy marketplace, especially, you know, we're talking about the Chinese economy, massive flows of currency, massive flows of goods and service. I mean, incredibly, unbelievably complex. And at the center of all that, you have the monetary system. And at the center of the monetary system, you have the People's Bank of China. So if we're starting to see or if we actually see persistently a straight line, as you identified in the movie, it's a very clear signal of artificiality. Somebody's doing something. And that's, they're creating a result that they want to create. And therefore, you have to look at that and say, why are they intending to create this result? What does this relate to? You know, what is the straight line pointing toward? And where is it, where is, what are the implications in the wider story that we're trying to piece together? So let's identify what was that exact straight line between two data points, two reporting periods. The movement was... It's on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet, on the asset side. The vast majority of the the central bank's assets are what they call foreign assets, which are, you know, U.S. treasuries and all those types of, you know, foreign reserves that other denominations of foreign reserves that central banks run across through their daily normal activities. And normally what happens is that under, you know, ideal conditions where the global economy is growing, the euro dollar system is adding and contributing U.S. dollars to the global economy, more and more of those end up in the People's Bank of China's hands, which allows them, because it's on the asset side of the balance sheet, allows the central bank to create RMB or internal money, mostly in the form of bank reserves, but also in the form of physical currency that they print. As the assets go up, so does the liabilities and money go up. Since 2011 and really since 2014, however, as we know, we talked about, you know, we talk about this all the time, the Eurodollar system has experienced this contraction, these spasms that have taken dollars outside of China's hand. And the Chinese officials have tried very different, you know, various ways to offset or ameliorate this dollar deficit that they've been faced with for more than half a decade now. And one of the ways they did that, especially in 2015, was to sell off those foreign reserves, sell off those reserve assets on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet. So the assets that the, uh, that the, the central bank actually held. Think about quantitative tightening on steroids. That's exactly what the Chinese tr- opted to do back in 2015 during the third Eurodollar squeeze, what we call Eurodollar three. And so the asset side shrank, which meant that the, the liability or money side had to shrink too. And so the two things were related. You had uh, foreign reserves that were shrinking, therefore bank reserves in RMB internally in China also had to shrink as a consequence. 
since in this fourth euro dollar episode that began back in 2018, the Chinese have decided, for whatever reasons, we'll probably never know the specific reasons, or we're not privy to those kinds of conversations, and the Chinese communists are not very big on transparency. So we'll never know exactly what or why, but they've handled this, this fourth outbreak very differently than they did the third one. Instead of outright selling in mass, trying to make up this dollar shortfall, mobilizing their reserves, they've decided to do something else. I don't know what else it is because I can't, I can't find it. I've looked everywhere for it. They've been very good about hiding their, their big, massive footprints. But what we do see is that the level of foreign reserves on the Chinese, uh, People's Bank of China's balance sheet has been almost exactly the same for month after month after month, as if they're pegging the level of foreign reserves. And then, of course, as I wrote about in, in this most recent article, for the month of June, it was almost exactly the same number as it was in the month of May. So what that tells us is essentially they're doing stuff that they don't, we don't know what, they, what they're doing. And if they're doing stuff, there must be reasons why they're doing them. And just to give people some scale, I believe the normal number, let's say, it, I think it was 21 trillion yuan, right? And then 21 trillion 700 something. And then the next month they reported 21 trillion 700. And then the difference was 70 million yuan, which if you can't translate that into dollars, I've got that in my kitchen drawer here. And so yeah, your it was point 21, is... 21,833,26 That was the month of June. And the month before it was 21,833,33 So the difference was, as you pointed out, 70 million, which is infinitesimally small. Well, what is the percentage? You actually calculated. What's that percentage change? The percentage change was 0,003%. So 0.0003%, which is, again, it was a rounding error. And you say that the ch that chance of that happening, assuming no artificiality, no manipulation, is random. Pure, I mean, just impossible, right? It's got to be. The probabilities favor that there's manipulation taking place. Utterly, Why? Why is my no question other, right, There's no other way that you can have a complex, random marketplace end up in the same number two months in a row. And it's, again, it, you know, the larger point is it's not, this, it's not just two months in a row either. This is not just an outlier that happened. We've been following the straight line. It's been a little bit less straight in the months before, but it's clear that the Chinese have been embarking on this, this course of action for more than a year already. It's just gotten so ridiculous to the point where it seems like they're actually pegging the level of foreign reserves on the, on the People's Bank of China asset side of its balance sheet. You were discussing history, and perhaps it would be good to do just a little bit of a review, uh, just for people to understand what has been taking place over the last 20 years in China. So let's, let's start with the early 2000s in the world and China. What, what was happening when it came to money creation and the PBOC? It's actually pretty simple. When the dollar system, as I mentioned before, was working the way it was intended to work, which meant flooding the world with dollars. I mean, a literal flood of dollars, not this monetary policy, Jay Powell crap that we keep hearing about. When the euro dollar system was actually expanding and expanding rapidly in the middle 2000s, that meant a lot of dollars found their way into the Chinese hands because U.S. investors or foreign investors used U.S. dollars as a way to intermediate investing in what was at the time the biggest, fastest growing, most you know, stable growth economy that there was in the emerging markets. So you know, as the People's Bank of China had pegged their currency prior to that, that meant that the, the, the central bank was very active in currency markets. As those euro dollars hit their shores, a lot of them ended up on, in, in the hands of the, the central bank, who then converted them essentially into internal RMB, mostly in the form of bank reserves. And because so many dollars were flooding into uh, the, the central bank, they had an inflationary problem. There's too much money being created, which then led to the, not just the People's Bank of China, but also other regulators to try to restrict the level of bank lending and monetary growth through the banking system, which meant that they raised the reserve requirements on banks, almost in tandem with the rise in the, in the Chinese currency. 
But then I don't think they were very successful because the money creation continued and inflation was taking place. It was almost unstoppable. What about 2007 to 2009? Was China affected by that shock? Yeah, the first euro dollar shortage, the first global dollar shortage back, we call the global financial crisis, first global financial crisis. They were affected by it as everybody around the world was, but certainly not in the same, to the same degree that they were later on. So for, for the Chinese, it was sort of a temporary speed bump on the road to what everybody thought was an indestructible growth model. You know, that the Chinese can simply grow as fast and as far as they, they want. In fact, they've been doing this for 25 years because that's what they realized that uh, to survive in the modern, modern world, to learn the lessons that the Soviet Russians didn't, they had to continue grow, 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 and prioritize uh, economic advance over everything else. So in 2007 to 2009, it was a temporary speed bump where they made adjustments. They went back to pegging the currency for a while, which meant they were supplying dollars into the local marketplace, level of reserves, all that stuff. But uh, by and large, 2008 and 2009 for them was, was not as big a deal as it was everywhere else. And in fact, that led to a lot of talk about decoupling, about the end of the Washington consensus that the that the China the next the 21st century would be the Chinese century because looking around Europe and the United States it looked like a disaster zone but in China they just had the Olympics their economy rebounded right away it looked like they knew what they were doing and that they were home free that they had finally that the emerging markets had finally decoupled from the advanced economy money centers, at least China did. What happened in 2011 and 12, the second crisis? Well, the simple version is that we found out that wasn't true, right? Well, the dollar system, you know, between 2009 and 2010 and 2011, there was only ever a partial recovery. Most of that recovery, as you've just pointed out, Emil, was focused on emerging markets. The idea persisted that, okay, you know, I think it was Mohammed Al-Aryan from PIMCO said, called it the new normal would, per, would be the, the model, growth model going forward for the developed world. But the emerging market world would continue to go on and continue to grow as it had for, you know, practically 20, 30 years beforehand, especially China, especially China, because the government prioritized growth. They would do everything they could to make sure the economy stayed on track. And so for a couple of years, that seemed to be the case. But after we got into the second dollar shortage in 2011, things started to change. It started to radically change such that even the Chinese economy began to slow down in a way that looked a lot like what had happened the rest of the world a couple years beforehand. And slowly it began to dawn on people, especially dollar providers and dollar redistributors in Japan, that, oh my God, maybe the Chinese are not invulnerable and that this global dollar problem that we're having, which is becoming a global economic growth problem will impact everybody. If not, uh, not all at once, then at least nobody's immune from it and everybody's going to have to deal with at some point going to come to come face to face with the consequences of what is really a very different situation. Now for people who are, uh, who need a visual example of this, uh, China was continuing along at a 45-degree angle, I would say, after 2008. The 2011-12 crisis didn't knock them off. Well, it did knock them off course, but not down. All of a sudden, now they were just growing less quickly. So it wasn't a full-blown panic. But 2014 to 2016, the third Eurodollar crisis, that epicenter was in emerging markets, most uh, famously in China, and that one, well, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, Jeff. What happened to China in those two years? Well, that was, those are the two years where everybody started to talk about China having a hard landing. Because really, at that point, it wasn't just slowing or rate of growth, you know, a small change in the second derivative. It was really like, okay, maybe the Chinese growth story has actually changed here. And we'll talk, I mean, we've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, a lot of times which this is what, what happened in 2015, especially 2016, led Chinese authorities at the 19th Party Congress in October of 2017 to completely rewrite the priorities. China was no longer going to prioritize growth because, because of their experience in 2015 and 2016. They realized this is it. We, we've gotten as much growth as we can possibly get, so we're going to start changing the way we do things in China. And this was 2017. 
And a lot of that, we saw the same kind of corroborative evidence and corroborative impacts in the way the dollar system treated the Chinese and the way the Chinese currency behaved, and as well as the, how the Chinese central bank um, uh, reacted to the, those currency changes in terms of how it uh, balanced its own balance sheet and the money flows on it. That, that experience, the third crisis, was when we saw the Chinese yuan start, it inflected. It started going the other way. It had been appreciating for years. And ever since then, it's been going down. But as you point out, you've been studying it so well. And there's this whole Hong Kong uh, connection that we could talk about in another episode. The currency started to go down but the PBOC was fighting tooth and nail, coming up with different plans on trying to stop that, to arrest that fall. And uh, one of them that is very popular in the, uh, on, in our, in the, I don't know, in the Twitter sphere is uh, the Chinese Petro Yuan. And that's a question that uh, we often get. Can you talk a little bit about whether the Chinese Petro Yuan, whereby the, purchase of oil would be denominated in yuan versus dollars is as important as perhaps the U.S. agreement in the 1970s was, or is it a, was it something else less important? Well, I think the, the, let's start with, the, like, there's a couple points here, and let's start with the first point, which is, as you just pointed out, I think really well, Emil, that what we're really looking at is the, the correlation between Chinese authorities fighting, doing stuff, you know, having to, to fight this big dollar problem and how that correlates to the falling CNY, which is, of course, the other side of that is a rising dollar. So that's our, our major point here, what we're going back to, you know, the Chinese People's Bank of China balance sheet. By, by, look, by recognizing that straight line, what we're recognizing is the Chinese are fighting. They're doing something. They're trying to counteract forces that are beyond their control, and those forces are CNY negative or dollar positive. So that's, that's, that's what we're really looking at, is the more the Chinese have to fight, more the Chinese have, feel, feel they, they, they themselves have to do this fighting, these, these undertake these measures, that tells us something about what's going on in the dollar system. It tells us that the dollar system is still malfunctioning. And one of the ways that they've been tempted to deal with their dollar deficit, this involuntary dollar deficit, is they've tried all sorts of ways to diminish or reduce their reliance on U.S. dollars because it's so hard for them to get them. And uh, as you pointed out, the petro yuan was one of the ways that we, you know, that was the that the Chinese authorities came up with to say, look, we need a lot of dollars because we need a lot of oil. And if we don't need to price all of our oil in dollars, we can start pricing them in yuan and use RMB currency instead of dollars. That will, that will lessen our dollar need. It will lessen our dollar load and reduce this deficit and reduce the problems that come along with that deficit. What ended up happening, of course, is, I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, strategy and something that you would expect Chinese authorities to undertake in those situations. But what happens time and again as they do these things, including these bilateral currency swaps that the Chinese try to adopt here and there, is they get overhyped into these massive, oh my God, this is it. The Chinese are going to take over the global currency. When it's not really what's happening, this, again, our major premise, the Chinese are essentially they have a dollar problem and they're doing their best to try to mitigate it, including, if they can, pricing some of their imported oil in their own currency. It's not an, att it's very di it's not an attempt to replace the U.S. dollar's reserve currency. It's actually a way to try to diminish the, the disastrous impacts of being stuck with the dollar. Jeff, we, I started the, the episode by talking about how the creation and destruction of money will affect our economy. And the, almost, I think this is the last graph of this article. I'm going to pull it up for the YouTube folks so they can see it. But the last graph, if you can just talk to a little bit about how you show two of uh, China's big three economic accounts. You show retail sales and which one else do you show industrial, industrial production, production and, yeah. and then you compare it to bank reserves or the PBOC's liability to uh, internal, the internal banking system. Just talk a little bit about that. Well, it's, it's the real economy consequences of what is this dollar squeeze or the dollar shortage, however you want to characterize it. The malfunctioning euro dollar system that goes back to 2007. So, I mean, the, the, 
very good correlation between what's going on, of course, internally and externally, externally on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet. Dollars flow in, that means more RMB in bank reserves, so higher growth in bank reserves, higher internal monetary growth inside of China. Dollar problems show up 2008, they're temporary, but we get some growth back, some recovery in 20, 2009, 2010, which as you can see in the chart, allows the Chinese economy to bounce back very quickly from the uh, Great Recession in 2008, 2009. However, by 2011, we have this, this really paradigm shift, this change in the dollar system where nobody is safe from, from it, and all of a sudden you have external drag of dollars, internal drag of, of RMB in terms of not just bank reserves, but also physical currency printed, because if you're constrained on the asset side, you're constrained on the all of the liabilities. And all of a sudden, as monetary growth becomes constrained, so does economic growth. And it's, you know, and it's not just China. It's not just that the Chinese economies experience the same thing. We find these same correlations all throughout, not just emerging markets either, but all throughout global economies. It's the, the global dollar system that's causing all of these internal monetary constrictions, which are then reinforced in these these uh, economic slowdowns and downturns and even outright recessions. And in some places, depressions that they've, that these economies have never recovered from. Jeff, if our uh, audience is interested in learning more about China, we had a big episode about China. And so uh, they can go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, all the different podcast providers, and they can download that. And they can uh, hear what we were talking about. That I believe it was episode 15. Okay, Jeff, let's move on to our next article. And this was written on August 5th. And you posted it at Alhambra Investments. And it was called Buckets and Toolkits, Each Are Empty. Uh, why did you write it? Well, again, we're, we're talking about where is the economy going to go from here? Now, we all know that it was bad. I mean, we just went through probably the worst quarter in modern economic history, not just here, but almost everywhere. But that, you know, it's not a surprise. Everybody's kind of factored in. We've, we've, we've kind of come to peace with the fact that this is a really bad interruption in the global economy, in the U.S. economy. But what comes next? Is it going to be a full and complete recovery where after, you know, a little while, a couple of months, we're right back to where we were before, and this is all just a bad memory. Or are there things that will, uh, are there factors that will come about which will interrupt that kind of rebound recovery process and, and make this a prolonged period of economic agony? And that's what we're really looking for. That's, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy, both quote unquote stimulus policies are designed and aimed toward making sure we have more rebound, less prolonged. Well, then what might be in the toolkit? Or actually, let me, let me rephrase that. What is perceived to be in the toolkit of our monetary technocrats to help uh, lessen the downturn and quicken the recovery? Well, you would think there'd be a lot of money in the toolkit because they keep talking about something called a printing press, which we all, I mean, we're taught that the Federal Reserve especially controls and, and uses the printing press to its, whatever its designs or whatever its programs or whatever its policies might be, but they don't actually have it. So in lieu of uh, actual printing press, because as we, you know, our, our major premise here at Eurodollar University is that it's impossible to really define money. And this, these Euro dollars we're talking about are most often just a euphemism for bank resources, bank liabilities, bank assets, you know, all the stuff that the banking system does, including derivative transactions. So in lieu of an actual printing press, what is actually in monetary policy? Well, believe it or not, it's an expectations policy, which means getting people to believe that they actually have a printing press and that they're using it. So what, what Jay Powell has on his side are, is, is essentially the entire financial media, which continues to write about monetary policy as if, the, as if this printing press was actually a real printing press and not just to create the uh, uh, remainder creation of bank reserves. And it's also, and he's also got, you know, this legend that we've all been raised with, especially people our age who remember Alan Greenspan in the 1990s, who was, you know, the legend, the, the maestro, the apex of the perfect uh, you know, Socratic technocrat, the most wise and most, you know, the best, brightest, the, the guy who had the most ability, who knew what he was talking about, 
and then handed it off to other people like Ben Bernanke and then Janet Yellen and now Jay Powell, who have all followed in his legendary footsteps and, to, and are able and capable of doing all the, th- all the same things that we've been hearing about uh, from Alan Greenspan for decades upon decades now. So the Fed has in its corner the financial media, this myth, this legend, and the fact that because of all these things, everyone says that this is, must be what's happening. And, of course, human beings are not wired to believe that everyone is always wrong about some such big, big things. That's really what monetary policy is. It's, it's, a, it's essentially a religious cult-like belief system. I remember that uh, Ben Bernanke was also one of the uh, members that uh, mentioned the printing press, and I think he said it was that they could let it run pell-mell or higglity-piglity or willy-nilly. But is that actually happening? You show a couple of graphs right in the beginning of your article saying, mm, I'm not so sure. And those were credit spreads of corporate bonds. Uh, it looks like they both have come down a bit from where they were earlier. When I say both, I'm referring to the kind of the safer corporate bonds and then the more risky corporate bonds. It looks like it's come down. So success? Yeah, this is the other part of the current monetary policy program that's kind of new. And there's always got to be something new in the, in the toolkit. At least that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the idea they want you to present you with. And the new part of the toolkit is essentially that Jay Powell isn't just going to print money, print a lot of money. He's actually going to use this printed money, this printing press that he supposedly has, to support markets. And the reason he wants to support the corporate bond market in particular is because the corporate bond market was actually the epicenter of global financial crisis number two, which took place in March, as you can see in the charts that we're showing you here. And these, the spike in credit spreads, which is essentially those markets breaking down, was incredibly destructive because that's what linked to the repo market, the collateral side, which then caused the liquidations in all these global markets, including, including U.S. stocks, which everybody knows never, ever go down. So Jay Powell has put it as an, as an attachment to his printing press activity that we're going to support corporate, corporate markets because we obviously there's a need for us to support corporate markets. And all we've heard since March was that Number one, the Fed is going to be buying corporate bonds. Therefore, you know, why would you ever fight the Fed? And number two, this flood of liquidity. Therefore, everything is perfectly fine. But when we look at credit spreads, what we see instead is, yes, they've come down by quite a lot, but they're still quite elevated. And they're certainly not down to where they were back in February. Like the dollar is still high. There are still pockets of, you know, angst and uncertainty that is causing markets to be you know, still slightly dislocated, not quite on board with this. The Fed is supporting it and guaranteeing everybody. Well, maybe they just need more time, I suppose, to uh, settle down. But I don't think that's what you're driving at in the article. And you did write, quote, the riskier the asset class, the more elevated. Underneath, and that's what we're trying to get at, is what is underneath these numbers? Volumes have come in just the way you'd figure, given the stubbornness of of uh, spreads, not normal. What do you mean by volumes have not come in normal? Issuance volumes. The credit market has taken a step backwards. And the reason why is because the, vo- the default volume, which was what I'm really getting at of that quote, has exploded. In fact, we're seeing in some, some, some of these buckets, the, volume, the default volume is at record levels, or at least in all the buckets, it's back where it was in the worst days of 2009. So we're really starting to see what it is that has draw, driven a lot of the angst in these corporate markets is, yeah, so Jay Powell's going to buy some ETFs and maybe some individual bonds. He's got a predetermined list that, that BlackRock came up with in, a, in conversation with a bureaucratic committee seven weeks ago, and they're going to be buying these bonds all along. But that doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is we may have a solvency problem, which is defaults, losses, credit, credit problems. And uh, doing us a favor is Fitch, the credit credit rating agency, and they recently came up with an estimate for this year and next year, and they estimated that they are expecting to see five to six percent in 2020 of of uh, corporations going or defaulting on their bonds, and then another seven to eight in 2021 of around 15 percent in total. Jeff, is that a lot? 
Yeah, that's an enormous amount. And this, we're, let's be clear, we're talking about the high yield bucket. But that's an important part of the market because in a liquidity environment that isn't, isn't the way that it's being talked about, as we saw in 2007 and 2008 with subprime mortgages, the issue wasn't the, the solvency, the credit problems in the riskiest parts of the system. It was how those questions about you know, collateral and transformation, all these other things, transmitted into other parts of the uh, monetary system. That's exactly what we saw in March. What we had was a liquidity breakdown based upon potential you know, market, market agents starting to think ahead of, what if we do have a credit problem? What if we do have credit risks? How do we, how do we, uh, how do we handle them ahead of time? What we saw was essentially dealers simply stepped away from all markets. That's why you saw credit spreads explode for pretty much every category. It wasn't that we, people are worried about Walmart defaulting. It was the fact that the, 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 the just the, the minor thought that maybe there's a credit problem in the high yield stuff, the worst junk kind of corporate bonds, maybe that's going to spill over and it just becomes a monetary snowball where questions don't get answered and that it becomes a, you know, essentially a liquidity vortex, a vicious cycle where one thing begets another begets another. And the idea was that under monetary policy, by the Fed supporting the corporate bond market, or at least portraying itself as supporting the corporate bond market, that would interrupt all of these negative feedback loops in the, in the vicious cycle. But what we're seeing, especially in, in elevated credit spreads, is, yeah, well, maybe it's, it's convincing some people, but it, there's still a lot of questions out there. Jeff, so the Fed is supposed to be supporting the corporate bond market by buying some of these bonds, and that's supposed to filter down through the rest of the credit tree. The Federal Reserve does do a survey of loan officers about the real economy, not the market, but real loan, well, at least that's how I think of it, the real economy where uh, bankers are making loans to businesses, commercial real estate, uh, residential mortgages, um, industrial and commercial loans. How does that survey look right now? What are the results telling the Federal Reserve? Yeah, I think in terms of the way the Fed prioritizes its goals and its aims, it's actually more aimed at what you were just talking about, banking and lending and that kind of thing, than it is the junk market. I mean, they're using their support in the junk market to, to transmit a message to the entire banking system that says, hey, the stuff that you saw go nuts back in March We've got that covered. Therefore, you've got nothing to worry about. Plus, you know, we flooded the world with dollars and liquidity, therefore inflation. So you better start making a bunch of loans today and that will get the economy back up or what John Maynard Keynes used to call pump priming. That's really what the Fed is doing. It's using these, these expectation-based signals to signal to the banking system to go back to normal and even, you know, with inflation expectation or at least the inflation expectations the central bank wants to create not just go back to normal, but you better get going with lending because we got inflation coming. And so, you know, they really are prioritizing their signals to the banking system because lending still is the basis of much of what goes on in, uh, the economic, in terms of economic activity. And, and the results, though, the survey, though, well, how does that look? Yeah, we're talking about the Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, which the Federal Reserve conducts quarterly. And what you find is that... Uh, even worse than when you see in credit spreads, the banks, the senior loan officers across all of the categories, which include, as you pointed out, Emil, uh, we're talking about commercial industrial loans, commercial real estate loans, um, uh, residential and, and commercial mortgage loans, as well as consumer loans. The banks have said, no way, we don't, we're, we're not buying any of this. Um, what we're actually doing is we're reacting very harshly, very pro-cyclically, in that we're going to be cutting back. We've, we've tightened our lending standards. That's really what the, the, the survey show you here, is that banks have so tightened their lending standards that they're, they're essentially telling the Fed that the, the number of, of potential borrowers who are gonna qualify for loans are, have been so restricted that it's, you know, the level of, level of lending is going to have to adjust lower because of it. So the message the Fed is attempting to send to the banking system is not being received by the banking system at all in the same way. In fact, as I think I wrote in the article, the banks have told Jay Powell to stick it where the sun don't shine. They've looked at the, the economy, especially the labor market, especially the way 
you know, the, the way the business sector is going right now, question, questions that are bound are there, the, the potential for, you know, further economic consequences and the fact that so much is uncertain. And they've said, it does, we don't care what monetary policy is. We don't care about inflation, this promised inflation from the central bank. We don't care that they're buying a bunch of corporate bond ETFs. What we're seeing is instead is a complete and utter mess. In fact, it's, it's such a mess. We've only seen this once before. And that was a senior loan officer survey for October 2008. So after three, what we're talking about, you know, three, four months of monetary policy, three more, four months of monetary flood and markets being supported and the stock skyrocketing, especially the NASDAQ, the banking system itself is saying this, we haven't seen anything like this since the fourth quarter of 2008. Jeff, final question for me. Uh, what about the idea that government will start guaranteeing some of these loans that the banks make. There's been some talk about that. Uh, and you say in your article that, mm, that that's not going to be quite the solution people think it is. Well, it sounds like it should be, right? I mean, it's, if the banks are concerned about, hey, we make some loans and, and the, it turns out that that was a bad loan, if the government steps in and says, well, we'll guarantee all the loans, well, that should be problem solved, right? But, you know, it's never that simple. And I run across this all the time. We saw, you know, just talking about how the Fed is supposedly supporting markets. On the surface, it sounds like the Fed is supporting market, but the Fed is actually just buying certain stocks, certain bonds, certain ETFs. It's not at all the same as, as, as supporting a market. They're just doing some things that people characterize as supporting a market and it's sort of taken that way. But when push comes to shove, the, the corporate bond market is, is still as vulnerable as it ever was. It's just creating a myth of support. The same thing with loan guarantees. I mean, you know, we had loan guarantees on subprime mortgages uh, on prime mortgages too back in 2007 and 2008. And what happened with those guarantees is it created an even bigger problem because it infected the GSEs who contributed mightily to the, especially the second outbreak in September of 2008. But more than that, I mean, what we're really talking about, what the Fed wants to accomplish, is it wants to get banks to extend new loans. And a bank is not going to knowingly extend a new loan to a person it knows it's going to default. The person to a borrower it knows it's going to default. It doesn't matter if the government guarantees it or not. You're not going to lend to somebody who's not going to pay you back. And what is the bank going to carry a non-performing loan on its books for, for many months and then hope at the end of it some bureaucrat approves that, there, that this is a loan worth being guaranteed. It's way too much trouble. It's way too much uncertainty. It's too, way too much of a negative pressure for them to make an existing loan based on a loan guarantee. It's just not going to happen. Banks are going, when, and what the senior loan officer opinion survey is showing you is that, no, we don't care what's, I mean, guarantee, market support, monetary policy, whatever it is, we're not going to lend the way we used to lend. That's, it's, that's the bottom line message that the banks are sending to, the, to, the, to pretty much anybody who wants to listen. Well, this section of our show was sponsored by social media. So if you want to support the show, go find Jeff on Twitter, subscribe to his feed. You'll find him at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. You'll find me at Emil Kalinowski and search for this show on YouTube and with your favorite podcasting provider. Jeff, let's move to our third and final article and I'm sorry to bring this up to you, but you have a misspelling in this article. Uh, you, you misspelled it terribly. PMI is what we're going to be talking about. It's August 5th. You posted this at Alhambra Investments. PMI, Purchasing Managers Index. You butchered index. How did you do that? What were you thinking? Yeah, it's actually Purchasing Managers Indigestion which is what I wrote. I don't think that was a typo. That might have been intentional on my part. <laughs> the point, I okay, mean, the well, point then is, maybe you know, I misunderstood. What, what was the article about? That? No, it was, look, what we're seeing in the PMIs is that they're rising. They've come back above 50 again, which is being taken as some kind of sign of normalcy or even a V-shaped recovery when it's not. I mean, PMIs aren't actually telling you the level of growth. All they tell you is, how many more respondents to these surveys are getting more activity or less activity? So if you have a major decline, which you would expect to see is in that decline, the PMIs fall below, well below 50 because far more people, far more survey respondents are, are saying we're seeing less activity. 
And so going back to 50 from that low level just means that you've leveled off at the bottom. It doesn't mean growth. Yeah, I'm very happy that you explained that because uh, D- Dr. Chris Dark, who's on uh, Twitter, and he goes by at Darky999, and he's got 5,000 followers. He's a fellow podcaster. He's got a PhD in superconductors from Oxford. And I think he's got a pet peeve about people who say that the V shape in the PMI chart means a V shaped recovery. So we were going to get some hate mail from him if he hadn't just explained that, that it's a V shape, not a V shaped recovery. Jeff, some people may not know what a purchasing manager index is. Is it a kind of a is it a soft sentiment survey? Does it incorporate some hard data? Can you tell uh, the audience a little bit about what these surveys are? All they are is they, uh, it's a survey, obviously, of purchasing managers, so corporate officers who are close to economic activity that's going on within their corporation. So it's a very broad survey of people who are situated right on top of actual economic activity, asking them, are you seeing more growth or less growth? Are you seeing more uh, prices go up, your input prices going up, or are you seeing less input prices going up? Are you hiring more workers? Are you, are you hiring fewer workers? Are you laying off workers? Those kinds of questions. It's really about, are you doing more or are you doing less? So uh, if you answer more, then you go into the category of people who are answering more. And if there are more people answering more, that means the PMI goes above 50. That doesn't necessarily tell us that growth is robust. It just tells us that given where we were, and that's where you really have to start with these things, where were we when we started, where there's more activity from where we started. And that's, since it's measured month to month, all we can really say is if a PMI is above 50, is that there's slightly more respondents saying, we have a little bit more of activity this month than last month. That's not quite what people are, are thinking. Let's put some numbers. Let's put, make. We've been talking theoretically. Let's put some numbers to it. Let's talk about two real PMI surveys that you talked about in your article. The market survey, not spelled market like we're all thinking, but market the company, and the uh, ISM survey. What were they saying? What were those scores in the United States, by the way? Well, the market survey, and it also goes for Europe and some of the other PMIs and global PMIs, um, IHS market survey for manufacturing, as well as services, and therefore their composite index, was, you know, stuck around 50. So this, we had this major decline where lots of survey respondents said they were, seeing sh- they were saying they were getting fewer activity or lower at levels of activity, which was consistent with what we saw in March and April and parts of May. Now, after that big decline, what you would expect to see from market or anybody else is lots of people saying, we're seeing more activity. And that would come out in a PMI, not near 50. All a PMI near 50 says is, we've kind of balanced the level of people seeing growth versus contraction, but not balanced level of growth, but balancing those numbers at a normal level, but balancing those numbers from the bottom, from the trough, from from the contraction. So all the PMI at 50 for the month of March tells you is that we're kind of stuck near the bottom. You know, Jeff, a lot of people uh, in the comments section, they say, Emil, all you do is just stand there and look pretty and Jeff is carrying the whole show. And I say, yeah, so that's okay. But I actually did some work for this episode and I went out and I found that there are about 103 different PMIs manufacturing, service, and composite, and they stretch from Australia to Zambia. Right now, we were just talking about the USA. Let's do a little game, Jeff. We're going to test you out. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. Right now, for July, so far I count there are 54 manufacturing PMIs, again, from Australia to Zambia. 42 of them have been reported so far for the month of July. Jeff, what was the average score of those 42? You're asking me to guess the average score? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I would say 53. Would you believe that it was 50 and a half? Oh, Ooh. that's not good. No, it's, it's not good. Uh, 50 and a half for July right now. Last month's average was 48.2. 32 of the 42 are better than June. That's great. 
but only 24 of that 42 are actually expanding. And I define expanding as above 50.4. You know, I give it a little bit of a neutral territory from 45.5 to I'm sorry, 49.5 to 50.4, I call that neutral. So only 24 of the 42 are expanding. Uh, let's do the same thing for services. Services should be much better than manufacturing. Let's do it again. Jeff, 20 scores have been released so far. I count that there are 23 that are released each month. So far, 20 have been released. Jeff Snyder, for 1 million euro dollars, was the average score a 32, 47, 51, or 59? I would say 51, given what you just told me before. <laughs> That's right. It was a 50.8. Yeah. 17 of the 20 scores are better in June than they were in July. I'm sorry, better in July than they were in June. And we have 14 of the 20 that are expanding. Jeff, Final round, final question for me here. Can you guess what the composite score is? There are 22 composite scores. What was the number for July? A reopening boom month. Well, it must be around 51 then, given what you've just told me. 50.1. Oh, it's even less. Jeez. Yeah. So manufacturing is 50 and a half, 50. Uh, 50.8 for services and 50.1 and the math you would think it should end out in the middle but not all the countries that have manufacturing right. uh, PMIs have services right. and they don't all make it into the composite but basically two months into the reopening boom let's say two and a half months this forward-looking indicator is saying not recovery but just a respite you know the the downturn is over but no actual recovery. We're at 50. Yeah, there's a big difference between rebound recovery and just not contracting anymore. And, and being stuck around 50 is the latter, not the former. The being stuck around 50, especially after a massive decline like we just experienced, is really, really concerning. It's really alarming. I think that's why you're seeing you know, the bond market in particular and certain other markets starting to, you know, not just starting to, but maintaining their position that we're not through this thing yet. This thing is not yet over. We've only hit the first part of it. And there are going to be consequences, as we see in the senior loan officer survey. There are going to be consequences for being stuck in a prolonged period of, of economic, um, well, however you want to characterize it, dislocation, contraction, recession, worse than that, better than that. I mean, whatever, the, whatever adjective you come up with. And I also want to point out that, you know, where you were using markets numbers there, the ISM numbers appear to be so much better. I mean, the services one got up to, what was it, 59? That's not materially different from markets numbers. It's not, it's still saying that there's a bit more people, bit more of the survey respondents saying that there's growth, but not a lot more people. As If you would expect, you know, again, if, after a large decline, if you're expecting a rebound, you would expect a, a vast majority of survey respondents to say, we're seeing more activity, not less. And the other important point is consistent with what we're talking about, when you look at the ISM's employment components, they're still well below 50. And they're telling the, they're telling ISM and you know the purchasing managers are telling this as, as they respond to these surveys, that they're more like there are more firms that are still likely to be laying off workers than hiring them back, which is consistent with the idea of being stuck close to a bottom and therefore being un very, very uncertain about how the future is going to play out. Jeff, this is our 21st episode, and it's being recorded on August 7th. Now, 13 years ago, it's the BNP Paribas episode then, because 13 years ago, uh, some accountants at BNP Paribas noticed that they were having trouble valuing three different funds. And then two days later, they released a press uh, press release and they said yeah we're going to stop valuing these three funds you know for our audience that may be new they may be thinking so who cares well let me just read a quote from Larry Elliott the economics editor for the Guardian it was and he's talking about August 9th it was however the day the world changed 
As far as the financial markets are concerned, August 9th, 2007 has all the resonance of August 4th, 1914. It marks the cutoff point between an Edwardian summer of prosperity and tranquility and the trench warfare of the credit crunch. The failed banks, the petrified markets, the property markets blown to pieces by a shortage of credit. He's talking. He's making an analogy to uh, World War One, and I remember that uh, one of the books back here up there is uh, "The Guns of August" by Barbara Tuckman, and she notes that in uh, the World War One, everyone thought it would be over so fast. Jeff, our monetary disorder, we thought it would be over fast too. This is year thirteen. I think the World War One analogy is a very good one because you remember. If you know anything about history, World War I led to World War II. So it was not just, not even, not only the war lasted long, the war itself lasted a lot longer than people thought. The consequences of that dramatic paradigm shift didn't get sorted out for decades. And I think, you know, that's one of the, our main driving points behind Eurodollar University. And what we do here is that August 9th, 2007 was similar. It was a paradigm change, which the consequences of, uh, of that kind of a shift not only did it, meant, did it mean that there was going to be a big crisis, a prolonged crisis in 2008 and 2009, that everything that has followed from it is very different than how, it's supposed, how, it's, how it was supposed to have gone. And we are still dealing with the consequences of that monumental change even today. Jeff, I was just reaching back for a book recommendation about... Uh... World War One. It was called the Sleepwalkers, and I think you can say the exact same thing about our monetary situation. Yeah, uh, World War One is supposed to be the event of the 20th century that explains everything. Essentially, what happened in 1914 didn't end until 1991. Essentially, the consequences of which. Um, perhaps that's too depressing a note to end on. If you've got anything positive to say. Uh, let me know. Otherwise, we're going to end on that. Well, the positive is that the more people pay attention to these things, the more people that realize that August 9th, 2007 is a date that they should note and understand and start to appreciate the fact that Jay Powell's just spinning myths and fantasies and fairy tales and see that how that, that's playing out in front of our very eyes today and connecting all of these things, the more that happens, the more likely we are to arrest this negative uh, developments, these these bad things that continue to happen and depress the economy and cause all sorts of political and social disevil, dis, disorder and upheaval, the more we can get people to realize these things and connect them, the better the chance we have of stopping them and creating something better before it gets to be even worse. So there is hope here. There is, there is, and even in my own perception, you know, I've been doing this a very long time. You know, at the very beginning, people, almost nobody paid attention to it. I mean, the, these ideas are, were just, you couldn't find them anywhere, especially over the last few years. And people talk about, that's why we talk about China a lot. When you realize what's going on with China, more and more people are starting to get the sense, yes, there's a dollar system and it makes a, it makes a big difference in how things happen. It is starting to, I don't want to say it's an awakening quite yet, but there is more of a sense of dollar shortage, rising dollars bad, all of these things that we talk about and understand more deeply. There's, it's becoming more of a mainstream of type of uh, accepted idea. And yeah, I want to just draw that out. One last item before we go. This, uh, this shows a little bit of a downer. We talked about some depressing numbers. And your work is often not very happy because things are not very happy. But Jeff, you and I are both very optimistic about the future, and we think there's a, you know, a real boom out there as soon as we get through this difficult time. Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic long-term, and that's the problem. What is long-term? You know, we're, we, just thought, we just talked about August 9th of 2007, so 13 years. Sounds like it should be long-term, but when you really step back and look at history, the wide swaths of how you know, these major historical paradigms of, of how they manifest and how they eventually evolve and, and, and uh, resolve themselves. We, you know, some of these things are multi-decade events. Some you just pointed out, you know, world war one started and it really didn't, the, the, the massive upheaval that it created really didn't work itself out until the 1990s. 
I don't think we're into that kind of a situation here. I have much more optimism that we'll get, we'll eventually get to the right solution, you know, whether it's forced upon the, the quote unquote establishment or not, you know, that's, that's a question we'll have to answer. But I think that, you know, we're in a multi-decade process. We're in the, we're in the least fun part of it, but eventually it will be resolved that human nature and human beings will not be kept down forever and that eventually we'll find the right way to do something. We'll find a decent solution. And when that happens, it will be an incredibly awesome period. Absolutely agree. Uh, my estimate is that it'll be all over by the end of the decade and we'll be in a new golden age. So doing some quick math in my head, that means episode 500 or so. <laughs> we will revisit this video and we'll see where we're at. All right, Jeff, you have a good weekend. I hope you're going to have a candlelight vigil on a Sunday, August 9th to commemorate that day 13 years ago. Absolutely. And just to make sure, make, make sure everybody knows that I don't carry the show, what they don't see is that you actually write all my answers for me and email them before we start recording. So I, I, people need to understand that I'm just here talking. I'm actually just, I'm just reading off papers. You're not even really there. You're like that character in that movie, Sim 1. So it's all an illusion. So the Matrix. Oh, Neo's calling me. I got to go, Jeff. Jeff.